going to start off by sharing my screen. Okay. Uh, I think you guys could see that. The door classification um, for spinopelvic functional safe component positioning in total hip replacement, a primer for all. Okay. Dr. Russell Bodner here, as well as a team of authors. Um, let me just make sure I didn't miss any participants. They're still coming in. Um, I'm going to go to, um, once we start, I'm going to take this away. And I'm going to, in about right now, I'm going to stop the share. I'm going to go to speaker view. I am uh, Dr. Ira Pershenbaum. I am the uh, publisher and editor-in-chief of uh, the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation, uh, otherwise known, according to Vin Dasa, as Joey. Um, we are very pleased tonight and, and uh, mm -hmm. really excited to have Dr. Russell Bodner, who is uh, nothing short of a LinkedIn superstar, and despite what he wants to be he is i'm telling you that right now and we are going to be discussing uh i feel two important topics um one is the screenshot i showed a second ago which was the concept of analyzing spinal pelvic function for as it relates to total hip replacement but in addition we are going to talk to Dr. Bodner about um, Dr. Larry Dorr and his experiences with Dr. Dorr uh, because um, for many of the young surgeons who did not have an opportunity in their life to meet such a giant of uh, 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 Larry Dorr, um, Dr. Russell Bodner had, a, uh, I know, a great relationship and uh, and it's important to get this, in my opinion, this word spread out of that that era of great, great joint replacements. Larry Dorr, um, Charlie Rockwood in shoulders, Dick Rothman in, in joints. Um, some some truly brilliant, amazing, amazing people. Uh, so I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Bodner. Uh, Russ, I'd just like to ask you to please uh, introduce yourself however you'd like, and then I'll start with some uh, what I call my softball questions. Okay. Sure, I'd be happy to, Ira. Thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um, I'm a practicing orthopedist in Sycamore, Illinois, and I do uh, mostly general orthopedics over the years. I went from mostly sports medicine to joint replacement in the past several years as I found myself involved in this research on uh, spinal pelvic parameters. I worked for 12 years in Santa Rosa, California after I finished my training at University of Pennsylvania. I did a fellowship in sports medicine with uh, Dick Stedman in South Lake Tahoe. And I think Kevin Plancher actually did a fellowship when he was in Vail we are kindred spirits, sir. Yeah, so, so I, I did that. And I did a little AO fellowship in trauma, settled in Santa Rosa, and then came to Illinois 
22 years ago to help my friends from residency take care of a division one university practice. And uh, I fell into this spinal pelvic thing uh, as a result of my interest in uh, trying to find something new, something that excited me, uh, especially going to the academies every year. And uh, in 2015, I fell upon this idea that you have to take pictures of a, a patient from the side to understand how their bodies move because the cup moves with them. And what we had always done didn't take into account any of that stuff. So mm -hmm. that, that is really what incited me to become a researcher and uh, brought me together with Dr. Dorr. So let me ask you a question, Russ. How, how did you, it doesn't sound like in your training, you spent time with Dr. Dora. What was your first interaction with him that got this ball rolling? So the story goes like this. 2015, Las Vegas, I'm wandering the floor, the trade floor, and I come to this little booth that says Corin, and I meet this, an engineer named Brad Miles, who showed me what they're doing. And they're taking pictures of patients standing and sitting and bending over and saying, you got to measure this. And then we can tell you where the cup goes because the pelvis is moving. And I said, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean the pelvis is moving? I'm moving how? Nobody taught me how it moves. So he spent two hours schooling me. And then the very next day, I was wandering in the spine poster session and I saw a poster that one of the authors was Rand Schwarzkopf in the spine yeah. section with all these pictures of the pelvis from the side with a spine fusion and this needs this and that. Needs. And I knew right then, I said, this is it. This is something I had never heard about, was never taught a chapter in biomechanics that we, we need to know more about. So I go home and I read about this and it all leads to a, a man in Paris named Professor Jean-Yves Lazenac who was one of the first guys to get an EOS machine. And Dr. Lesenek is putting people in the, he's a hip spine surgeon and he puts people in the EOS machine, standing, sitting, and he's taking these pictures that are full body pictures, biomechanics in space. And he, and he described all the way the hips change, pathomechanics. It was the most incredible series of papers I ever read. So I, I spent a lot of time reading all the literature I could about this. And I came to the end of the path and I said, okay, how can I use this for my patients? Mm -hmm. And dead silence, nothing. I, there was nothing. The only lead I had was an article in JBJS uh, written in 2014 by a guy, Larry Dore. <laughs> so I, re I read the article and it was very exciting. I could tell he had read Lasnik's work and he was trying to do the same thing I was, is figure this out. So I cold called him. Um, wow. I called his secretary and said, um, I'm really interested in this spinal pelvic stuff. Can I talk to him? Or, And believe it or not, Larry Dore answered me. I mean, Larry Dore called me back. It was actually, he didn't call. It was all email. He emailed me back and we started a discussion by email and um, it, it was off to the races, really. He was, uh, he was very um, 
opinionated, as you may know. I mean, he was brilliant and he was an expert in everything. Um, but I held my ground on the things I felt about. And I think after a while, he started to trust me. And then he, he actually tested me by sending me data. He sent a bunch of data and says, well, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And, and I would write back. And before you know it, you know, um, he was listening to some of the concepts I had, some of the thoughts I had that went along with his work. And he took me onto his research team as basically an outside consultant. And all we, all we did was communicate by emails. Wow. So what aspects of what he was doing were you contributing at that time? What, what were some of your ideas that fine-tuned what he was doing? So what he did, he came up with a protocol where he used computer navigation and put his cups in the best way he could using the, the computer and his ideas on combined antiversion. And then he would measure the sagittal parameters of the cup postoperatively. He never planned anything preoperatively with Sam okay. with these parameters, but he kept them all. His data was absolutely remarkable. Where my idea was, I'm going to figure out how to put uh, where the cup belongs in the plane that moves in the sagittal plane. Mm -hmm. So I had to I had to read the spinal literature. I had to figure out how it it worked, and this was all in the spinal deformity literature that came out of Jean Dubuisson's work and uh, Virginie Lafage in New York. These guys, these people had produced remarkable uh, understanding of spinal pelvic mechanics above the hip. So I had crossed the, the, the line. I was the missing link who didn't say, well, I'm a hip surgeon. I don't care about the spine or I'm a spine surgeon and I don't know anything about the hip. I had to, right. I learned it all in the sagittal plane. And so I started trying to figure out what I call Lazenex riddle where he, he produced a geometric uh, arrangement for a hip and the pelvis. And if you optimize those angles, it, it could be perfect. And the, and the accuracy would be way beyond Lewinick zone or any other thing we had. Right. So I used sagittal numbers and, and I would also explain to him how the body worked as a machine concepts because that's what my brain does it takes the data and it turns it into how does this thing work so if you know how it works you know what to expect so let me let me ask you a question and i also want to tell anybody in the audience if you have a question put it in the chat i will then call on you to ask uh, dr bodner or anyone else here a question about this um so let's, let's say that someone says, uh, a hip surgeon, the casual hip surgeon says, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't know about this. I'm just going to put the hip in at 30 degree, uh, th sorry, 40 to 45 degrees of uh, lateral opening, 10 to 15 degrees of antiversion. What's going to happen to my, if, if I ignore all this stuff, what are the consequences for me to ignore this kind of solid research? 
Well, the, the um, obvious consequence why people care about where their parts go is because of dislocations. Sure. And dislocations is, is a measurable event, but uh, hip impingement or mechanical uh, imperfect working of the two sides of the hip construct, you can't measure. So, and I think Dr. Dorr was looking for a way to improve dislocation, but he was trying also to work on uh, long-term mechanical failures. Uh, there, there's a lot of um, revisions. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's 15 or 16% of all hip surgeries are revision surgeries, but he knew that unexplained mechanical loosening could be because of impingement. Gotcha. And, and his work was to try to improve the component positions so the long-term durability uh, would be improved. You know, I, and, I, and I think that that really is such a key because you know, some people will use uh, an anterior approach and claim they don't get very many dislocations, but 10 years down the line, eight years down the line, nine years down the line, you get uh, metal wear, trunnionosis, um, you would uh, get some aseptic loosening that you, you just couldn't explain. And I think, uh, and, and I think that that's where he was going, right? I mean, everybody who's had dislocations has had patients where they take the supine AP pelvis and go, it looks great. It looks good. And that's the number that surgeons want to know. They want one number where to go. So all those cases in which the x-rays look fine, a great many of them, if you actually did functional x-rays from the side in different positions, you would find that the components are malpositioned. And uh, John Vidorczyk produced an article that uh, validated that. Well, you know, in looking at this, let's just say uh, someone comes on. I, I saw uh, Richard Southgate come on. Uh, Richard, I've known a long time. Um, he's new in practice, about less than five years, I think. Um, what, what does it take to churn up your office to prepare to do these kinds of x-rays and incorporate them in your practice? So uh, because I do primary research, I have nothing. I started, I do everything manually. And to this day, I still do all my measurements manually. Mm -hmm. If you use uh, some planning programs and they're becoming more common and more sophisticated, there'll be shortcuts. But the, the key is that you have to take an interest and interact with your radiology department to get the x-rays properly because uh, they're, okay. they're not the typical. And if you're in a big department where there's many, many techs, you may get quite a few x-rays that aren't really that good. I, I'm in a practice with maybe four x-ray techs and they're terrific at it. But once you get it down, these programs will just have you touch points and it'll automatically give you those angles. In fact, that's, that's why this research is important in that it will fuel the, the algorithms in the computers, in the planning programs. 
And then it would all be translated and spit back out to the surgeon in the simplest way, say in the standing position, when people tend to match the standing position in anterior surgery, mm -hmm. you put your cup in 43 inclination, 23 antiversion, and that, that'll be your bullseye. So has anybody, so I'm gonna show a picture from the article. Um, um, I always like to say when I show a picture like this, it's obviously intuitive, all the lines, but no. So maybe I'd, maybe you could explain to us on this picture, if this is not better, you know, this one, but what exactly are you going through to get to that 43, 22? So there's uh, what, what you're looking at here. This is a illustration from Dr. Doerr's 2017 paper. And in fact, I used it because it shows this central triangle in which one corner of the triangle says 59 degrees, the one that's uh, to the right. So this is what I created and worked with independently of this, I found this illustration after I created my geometric triangular system. And what this geometry allows is a calculation of the ideal cup angle, which here is below the lowest angle, which is 49 degrees in the standing position on the left, and it's mm -hmm. 51, 51, de 51 degrees in the right illustration on the, uh, the lowest angle. So the left is a standing position. The right is a sitting position. What all this is trying to do is to achieve those angles, the cup angle, by matching that cup angle optimally to the mobility and the spatial position of the pelvis. So now, you know, we do, you measure yeah. the, the number that is 10 degrees on the left. Sorry, 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 sorry. Okay. Yep, okay. The number up top that says 10 degrees on the left and on the right it says eight degrees is a measure called the sacral slope. And that is a, um, a measure of spatial position of the pelvis. And all I need, once uh, I have those numbers, I can, I can generate a position in space that's ideal for that cup. Right. I, I, if I have one more number, which is that number on the left, which is 50, and on the right is 53, that's a constant angle. So there's three degrees of variance between the two, which is okay when you're measuring by, by hand. But that's called the pelvic incidence, and that's a constant. And with that constant, then I can tell you also uh, the condition of the spinal pelvic system in which that cup has to work with. And, uh, and uh, it's a, it also has uh, an effect on uh, future risks. And because you, if you have a patient who is severely compromised, you'll also get uh, values that 
show high risk. Like the number 209 at the bottom, I know is a very high risk number. That means that that, that patient's standing position is hyperextended. The, 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 the normal is about 185. And that person is standing hyperextended, typically because there's no lordosis in the low back. They're kyphotic okay. above. And so I know that, that is, that's a high-risk patient. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you, when you put your cups in, do you use navigation uh, to know that it's 20 versus 23? I'm talking about after you've done these calculations. Now you know you want to put it in at 23 degrees, 25 degrees, using navigation tools? So I'm, I'm fairly unique in this, in that... Those numbers from the side, that illustration, the, the 49 stand and 51 sit uh, is an extremely tight target. And I actually target my cups in the sagittal plane, which is uh, what you're looking at when you measure that angle, you're looking at operative anaversion. Right. If you look at a, a, a coronal AP of the pelvis, it's easy to see the inclination angle and hard to understand the antiversion angle because the antiversion angle is an ellipse. If you go on the side view, the easy angle that's an inclination angle is actually the operative antiversion. And it's more sensitive than even the ellipse angles on a coronal. So I actually have the patient on the side I use a C-arm, a fluoroscopic control, and I put my cups in and I measure the angle of the cup to the pelvis, which is a constant. And I know when that patient gets up off the table, what that patient's angles will be. And then I use a coronal X-ray, mostly to check on the inclination angle. But my primary directive, which is the antiversion of the cup, is done in the sagittal plane. And there is no, absolutely no um, system that incorporates that on the market today. Because I'm the only one who, who uses it. Wow. There's no market. If we can, and there's no absolutely validated translation to say in any position, if I have this angle on the sagittal view, this is what it will be in the coronal view. If I have uh, an engineer in four weeks, I, we can do that, but it's never been published in a way that's usable quite yet. I estimate it, but uh, I think it, there is a, a bit of, of a, a guesstimation in my conversion. Interesting. I have uh, Richard Southgate has a question. Rich, you want to go on and ask your question? And I'll bring up the uh, figure that you wanted to bring up. Uh, I see Kevin Plancher raised his hand. So I, I think that's uh, higher in the hierarchy than a chat. <laughs> I don't know if the, the head coordinator called you out, Richard, so you can do it first. I, I, <laughs> me too, whatever you want. I didn't see the hand raised. I just saw the chat. I, I apologize. I, I will go to Richard because I called on him. And Richard owes his career to me because I was his mock oral examiner at the main orthopedic review. And I do think he passed his boards despite that, despite that, Richard. Yeah, 
I still, I think I need to tithe to you for the next decade, I believe. Yes, yes, correct. So, Rich, you had a question about figure four. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think, I, th I really, <clears throat> the thing that helped me start to understand this the most was figure four, that um, when I was watching, I believe it was in 2019, when uh, Larry Dore was giving that symposium at AUKUS, um, that's when I started to be able to start wrapping my head around this. Um, and, you know, I realized in all our conversations, I've never really asked you um, what the rationale is for the yellow zone and why we would decrease inclination, uh, perhaps for the hypermobile and kyphotic patients. So uh, what, what you're looking at here, this chart is the Lewinick zone. And what I did is I, I um, told Dr. Doyle, this is what your recommendations do in a graphic form that people will understand. You, he, he had in the Steffel article in 2017 in the British Journal, he had distinct recommendations for mobility categories. So you have stiff as the red, normal as the blue, and hypermobile uh, uh, and kyphotic sitters, which, ha which have a, a great deal of mobility in, in the yellow. Now, at that time, there wasn't a, a lot of data. There was some that he had, but not enough to know what happens after you put the hip in? This is just a was planning based on preoperative numbers. Now I'll explain it this way, Richard. The uh, the way we put hips in is close to the supine and standing position are fairly close together. So it's almost putting in a uh, hip in the standing position when we do the Lewinick zone, which is a coronal position, coronal supine position. They're, they're on average five degrees apart, where sitting can be 25 or more. So if you wanna put a cup in, the, in a hypermobile patient, you have to start it low when they stand, because when they have this big excursion, when they sit, it's going to be high. If you put it in normally and they sit, it could be too high. You could have a very open vertical kind of cup when they sit. So, the, and the opposite is when you're stiff, you have to put the cup in high standing because it doesn't go back and it'll be too low sitting. That's the, the one that's most uh, of the scenarios, that's the one that's the most intuitive, that if you can't roll back your pelvis to accommodate the sitting position, then you have to put more antiversion in your cup to uh, accommodate that. So we have Kevin, Kevin, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kevin Plancher. Yeah. Hi, Russell, um, you're too brilliant. I'd like to take it back to a Google Earth position for me just to help. So I've listened to Jonathan and all of these people. I wanna get a better way to understand for the younger people, you either have a fused uh, spine, and so now it's time to get a total hip, or you have a hypermobile uh, spine, kyphotic or whatnot, and it's time for total hip. And everyone else in the middle, I'm not worried about because they work out. 
So I'd like you to help everyone because that's how I view it. That's where you and Jonathan say the two extremes. So we're pretty safe in that middle zone that we do it. But those are the people because do you get your spine surgery first? Do you get your hip surgery first? And that little fight, now you're stuck. They have the hypermobile or you have the fuse. How do you advocate? What do you advocate to the younger people? Simply, you're taking an exam. It's a hypermobile spine. I'm going to either antivertebrate more. It's a fused spine. I'm going to do this. What do you do just succinctly? I read the article. I see it. I get it. But I think for the rest of them, that's really the answer they're searching for. Okay. So there's a, a fused spine locks the upper portion of the of the lumbosacral junction so the pelvis can't move so that typically has to do with the sitting position so if you have a, a, a fused spine which most are not instrumented the the majority of people with stiff pelvis that the, the acetabular component won't be moving don't have metal in them and that's why i, I we advocate take these x-rays because you don't know. The fused person, a pelvis that doesn't roll back, you need to add antiversion to your cup because the femur is coming up into flexion. And if the cup can't roll back and open as it, as it does, then the femur will impinge on the front of the cup or the bone against bone and then you get the moment towards dislocation. The hypermobile actually has, has sort of changed. There's a couple of ideas on hypermobile. The vast, vast, vast majority of the hypermobile pelvis, so you measure sacral slope and it's over 30 degrees, that is because the hip can't flex. That's because of primary arthritis. So instead of flexing their hip, their pelvis rolls back and their spine straightens. So that they'll have a hypermobile, you could say lumbar spine and hypermobile pelvis. That also improves considerably after the hip function is restored. So hypermobile patients become normal patients almost routinely. And you can treat them as normal patients for for the most part, the, the, the ones you might worry about would be a lax 50-year-old thin yoga person trying to put their legs behind their heads. You know, that is a different kind of hypermobility. But the majority, vast majority, again, 97% of John Vidorczyk's study on this, uh, a year, one year after the operation, 97% were normal. And the only ones that weren't is because the other hip was affected. Got it. I appreciate it. It's just, I think it gives perspective to all the other details. Thank you. The um, other, the other yeah. problem, the other problem is, so we talked that about stiffness and, and sitting. Standing position is really a problem as well. And that is goes along with the spinal deformity kind of patient. The, the patient who, when they stand, their pelvis has to rock way back 
So it looks like they're sitting, and that's what Dr. Dor called stuck sitting. Those patients have, a, uh, have very bad spinal pelvic mechanics, and they have a very high um, dislocation rate. And you can, you can measure that multiple different ways. Uh, the common one, because John the Dorchik worked with Aaron Buckland, a spine surgeon, was to use the pelvic incidence minus lumbar lordosis. But there are, there are other ways, but it's not just stiff. It's the um, standing imbalance patient, the kyphotic grandma. That's a perfect one. A kyphotic grandma has spinal pelvic problems and has increased risks of dislocation. So, um, uh, uh, Jan, Jan Koenig, you had a question? Russ, <clears throat> great, great topic, Russ, and your paper was excellent. You started speaking more about Dr. Doerr's first classification. When I first heard him speak about this, rest his soul, he was talking about stuck sanding and stuck sitting. Um, and I started looking at this like yourself, but I found measuring the x-rays in the office, what I'm seeing 40 or 50 patients in a day is very tenuous and takes up too much time. So I looked and I got some software through Corin through the hip simulator, and I do the same measurements you do, but I have them placed into the program and then I can plan my cases. What I found is that when I have the stuck sitting or stuck sanding, besides changing my componentry, it might alert me to use a dual mobility liner as well in the cases that are very, very potentially unstable or have a very small target to hit. So my question I think was asked before is what do you use to hit the target because I find that conventional instrumentation, you don't know really where you are. And if you're doing a posterior approach, that patient can shift, tools can shift. Um, so what are you using to put it in? And are you looking at the femoral side? Because this is a two-sided joint. And by doing all these pre-op measurements, I do get a CT scan pre-op on my hip patients. And I've seen the femoral version anywhere from non-antiverted to 45 degrees of antiversion. So you have to take that into account as well, don't you, in planning? Great job, Russ. Thanks, John. So combined antiversion, I mean, that was probably the most important and um, most controversial area that you raised. Posterior approach surgeons have to be meticulous about combined antiversion because the hip actually dislocates easier out the back than the front. It's hard to dislocate a hip out the, out the front. So anterior hip surgeons typically don't know their femoral version uh, or, or uh, control combined antiversion when they're doing their hips. But posterior, they do. I do posterior because I want to know my femoral version. I want to control combined antiversion, not only be for dislocation, but for impingement, mechanical loosening, maybe a femur loosens prematurely because it's hit, hitting. You're not sure because we can't measure this very well. But combined antiversion can be told when you put your brooch in the femur in a posterior approach. And what I do is then I manage my cup position once I know what my version is. And you're absolutely right. 
that femoral version has a much, much broader range than native acetabular version. For years, I was always thinking I'm putting it in 15 degrees of antiversion. If I go back and look at 20 years of opera force, that's what's in there. But now it's a really individual antiversion that I'm doing. Yeah, and your, and your simulation, in the, you mentioned the program that you use, takes the antiversion of the femur into consideration. And when they do the simulation, it will change the cup position because they will find the impingement from the uh, antiversion. What I find with the simulators though, is they don't give you good tissue tension. No, we can work on lateralizing and everything, but it still doesn't me measure the tissue tension. So you really can't get that from the simulators. That you get from inside surgery, your feel. But I, I think this is a very important topic to prevent dislocation and early loosening. And, and in my article, I, I, I put very clearly the combined parameters or combined antiversion and the combined sagittal index, which um, combined antiversion, you can think of the spatial position at one position, which is usually measured the supine position. And combined sagittal index is the combined excursion of the cup and the um, stem in standing from standing to sitting position. Those are the mechanical parameters of the construct both sides, which there's no other, there's no other written recommendations that take that into consideration. One more thing, if we wanna do this well, and if you're gonna pick out an individual patient's target, we need a device to hit that target. And I'm thinking something, cause you're wearing great looking glasses like Google glasses or AR that we can program in our target and we can guide the cup and stem right down there. I think no that's doubt. the future. No doubt. I'm, I'm totally with you. Yeah, and I, that was a question I was going to bring up for, for, for Jan and for you, Russ, and for anyone else who's doing either robotics or, AI or uh, augmented reality or uh, any of these tools. It seems that some of the companies are uh, a little, uh, based on this data being around for so many years, not programming that into the into the robotics am i right about that russ that, that it's not currently programmed into the robotics with the navigation what what parameter isn't you no know, no the the preoperative information that gives that informs you of where the cup should be so they, I, they, yeah they are i mean they are if you look at the system jan uses um the system John uses and um, some of the other guys at HSS and those systems, you put in a sacral slope stand set, you can put in pelvic uh, incidents. Uh, I, I am working with IntelliJoint, which just came out okay. yep. with a planning program. And, and that's why I became involved with them because they're putting in functional spinal pelvic analysis to help target your, your cup. Um, at, at this point, not all, not all of them have the femoral side. The, gotcha. ones, the ones that are image-based, CT-based has the femoral version built into the programs. If you're image-less, most of them do not have the femoral side. 
I know in the OPS navigation, we get everything that you say <clears throat> for a pre-op plan, but we're still developing a device to hit that target with a, a degree or less of accuracy, right? Because that's what we need to get to. Precision, Jan, precision. Accuracy is the target. Precision is hitting it. <laughs> right. That's a great quote. And then, so, Jan, you're saying that um, we know where to put it, but we don't have the tool to speed it exactly where we want to, right? We're working on it. We are certainly mm -hmm. working on it with Nav Swiss and other companies. But I, I think for all surgeons and their teams, wearing a helmet or some special glasses so the whole team can see what's going on is going to be the future. Not only for that, but even for resident education. You and I might be doing the case and we're wearing these helmets or goggles and we see one thing, but a resident might get an educational thing. He'll be seeing what we're doing, but he'll have a narration. This is what the surgeon's thinking. This is what the surgeon's going to do next. I think that might be the future of uh, GME education and orthopedics as we get more into uh, mixed reality and augmented reality. But we're just touching the basis of that science now. We really don't have it at our fingertips. That's great. I, I, I use fluoroscopy and uh, measure it off this, the angles I want off the screen. There's no commercial program that will allow me to do my, my own technique. Interesting. Uh, Richard Southgate, you had another question. Um, yeah, Russ. So <clears throat> obviously I, like a lot of other people, follow you on LinkedIn. And you, I think your most helpful posts for those of us trying to understand hip spine or where you kind of work through these cases. Um, how do you get that view for the x-ray to estimate antiversion? Because I imagine you're not always getting a CT scan to estimate femoral antiversion preoperatively? I, I, don't, I don't get CT scans. So Correct. At, at one meeting, I saw uh, Tom Schmaltz read present on the modified Budin view, B-U-D-I-N. It's, it's an x-ray where the patient sits and they have their leg abducted and you can see the posterior condylar line of the knee and the neck of the femur. And so I started using that and I use it, um, it was validated, but I didn't trust it. So I started using it and mostly to see, do I have an outlier? Like Jan said, if somebody has 40 degrees of femoral antiversion, I wanna know that before I go in there. And this is a, I actually found it to be pretty darn good it doesn't tell you exactly because the version that you're interested in is what the brooch, where that, where that head is on your construct, where the brooch is putting it, not the native. And that can be dependent on the type of stem you're using because they're, they're finding their own way down the shaft. And that's, that's why I do the posterior approach as Dr. Dorr also did. He wrote on femur first technique and then modify your cup position because the cup position is really all you get to modify with uncemented stems. And so you can change your cup position to keep it within the limits of combined antiversion. And, yeah. <clears throat> and you can test it very, very well on the table in the posterior approach. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing more than half my hips anterior, but I think it's important that we don't, 
turn into zealots and there's a lot of anterior zealots out there. Um, I do agree that I, I think you'd mentioned it first, but I, I also found it is hard to kind of, I think you end up gaining a little antiversion if you're not careful. And it's, it's a lot harder to control your femoral version uh, with a DA hip, at least with in my hands. Yeah, I don't do DA hips. Yeah. I tried a few. I, I didn't know where my femur was and I broke one. So I said, I'm going back until I know how to do it. And, and frankly, I was hoping with my experience that I would start working with some company that might be interested in my expertise and then I could use their planning programs and help de develop them. I mean, that's all I wanna do is develop ec ecosystems and planning programs to help surgeons get it right. But so far it's coming slowly. <laughs> yeah, so I, I have a question about that speed and the speed that innovation gets um, applied is of always great interest to me. If you had to predict Russ, uh, Richard, uh, Kevin, uh, Jan, um, when will we see that precision happening? Um, you know, and this whole concept being incorporated. So the problem is solved with the augmented reality with you know, with the pre-op planning programs, with IntelliJoint, with Navi Swiss, you know, if you could predict the date, I, I'm just kind of having fun with this now, you know, you know, I, I, I want to see. Yeah. We've been working on this for a few years now and we're getting closer. Uh, we really need to hit that target. We need a device to do that. Um, but science takes a time and, and it's been a hard equation to do because we're looking at a lot of things. On the knee side, I found that I never needed an MRI or a CT scan. I found that added no value to what we were doing with omnibotics. When I did a little study, if you had 20% of robotic knees requiring MRIs pre-op, that was gonna add $2 billion to the healthcare budget per year. And that's only a 20% penetration, right? So I was always against that, but for the hip, once I got involved with the spinal pelvic relationship, I saw a lot of value in that pre-op CT scan. Even though it adds a little bit of radiation, um, I think being able to hit the target, um, diagnose the target for that patient uh, is very valuable and worth doing the CT scan pre-op. It's more accurate than even doing the x-rays that Russ is talking about. And then all that data goes into our hip simulator on the OPS. We can do the same thing if you have a loose hip, uh, any kind of hip that's causing pain, we have OPS review where we can do a CT scan and then look at those constructs and make a, a target for revision. But as far as giving you a date, that's gonna depend on some further science and FDA approval, but a lot right. of companies are working hard towards this is what I see. Right, Russ? Yeah. So as far as what you're going to see, Ira, is the Loenig zone is a 20 by 20 zone. Now, Dr. Dorr with his computer, computer navigation, but, but manual implantation stated he got it to plus minus four degrees. So from 20 by 20 plus minus four. Now you look at things like Mako, 
or when I, what I think my technique mostly would come out would be maybe plus minus three degrees. So as things get better, the precision of these devices that assist us and the ability to track things in space will become better. So what you're going to see are smaller and smaller circles of precision around the true template, uh, the true target. That, that's what I see. And so the time frame on that, I mean, decade, I mean, how tight do you want to get it? Half a degree by half a degree. But right now, I, the reason I got involved also is that I feel, and Dr. Dorn did do that, manual technique, maybe plus minus 10 degrees. I mean, it's right. It's bad. It's, it's bad. Also, you do not know on the posterior approach if your patient has shifted position. And I've seen that before. But my parameter, the, the sacroacetabular angle, it doesn't matter where the patient in the sagittal plane, uh, the rotation of the pelvis goes, it's a fixed. I also know how to correct for axial rotation on it. So I, I'm pretty, I'm actually pretty good. And because my, just like a, um, once you register a patient in space with the cameras, it will track that patient's motion. So you, you still have some control. When I put them in from the side using my algorithm, I have control. I, I could put a cup in with a patient standing on their head because I can target the angle between the sacral slope and the cup. There was a question, Blaine, Blaine Workentine. Uh, you, you had a question if you want to unmute and, and ask that. Sure. Thank you. Uh, um, this is really fun, by the way. Thank you very much for doing this. Um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, my my history goes back to Brain Lab, and I developed kinematic methods for like measurement with them. I like nineteen patents for them. But now I'm looking a little bit with orthopedics. Have you guys had experience with orthopedics? I couldn't Wait, understand. Re repeat that. We couldn't understand the brain. There was some there was some background noise. I'm not sure where that's coming from. Maybe it's like a speaker or someone else that's not muted. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Um, so yeah, my hope was uh, to get anyone's opinion on OrthoGrid. Has anyone had a chance to use OrthoGrid? So I know OrthoGrid, I haven't used it. Uh, it's a great product and it, it's used to take out the distortions that occur on fluoroscopic measurements. It, 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 it works very, very well. And they, they, they've got a new AI tool that appears to uh, make some of these adjustments for angles. Is that, have you, have you had experience with this? Oh, I, I haven't seen uh, Edward is, yeah. is, is the is man. Yeah. yeah. And I, I haven't seen the, the nitty gritty. Okay. Well, maybe, okay. I'll follow up that. Thank you. Well, a couple of things. I, I first of all encourage everybody to get onto LinkedIn. Um, I really think and uh, friend each other um, on LinkedIn uh, or connect to each other. We don't friend each other, connect to each other. Um, following Dr. Bodner, uh, following uh, Dr. Koenig, uh, uh, Richard Southgate, um, Kevin Plancher. Um, if you lose your mind, you might, may want to follow me even. 
but you need to follow each other. Uh, of course, these, these kinds of discussions are, we're just cracking the surface, I see. Uh, despite how elegant we, this article was, which was a tremendous article. And um, I just would like you, Russell, just, uh, we're sort of at the end. It's amazing how fast this time goes. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really unbelievable. But I wonder if you could just uh, give us some insight into some, uh, some of the musings of the mind of Larry Dore. Just a little change of that, you know? You know, I, I have communicated with him probably 1,500 emails over three years. And um, he had a mind that was un, unreal how um, he had it figured out. He, on almost anything you asked him, he gave you the answer. And you try to debate him and he would try to shut you down because he had the answer. And he lived life to the utmost extent. He, he did everything larger than, larger than life. The thing that impressed me most is how responsive that he was. I mean, I knew he was a busy man and I selfishly, so to speak, tried to hog as much time of him as I could. And he never, never once told me, stop, <laughs> I've had enough, <laughs> go away. He, he would engage me all, all the time. The other thing, because I didn't really, I didn't train with him. I didn't do a fellowship with him. I didn't know him. I met him only a few times in person, maybe five times in person, usually at meetings. And no matter where I met him, a constant stream of people just showed up to talk to him, shake his hand, take pictures with him. So I, I really realized how big his his reputation and uh, the love of people were for what what he did. I think he's one of the fathers of Akis and the Hip Society as well. Oh, he was the president of Hip Society, Knee Society. He founded the Journal of Founder. Architecture. He, he yeah. founded Akis. I mean, it, it doesn't end with him. He did he did everything. Well, I think this is this is amazing. I think he. Uh, if I didn't beat him to it, he would have found a Joey as well. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. I mean, I mean, I felt a, a feeling toward this man that all I can say is it was like my second father because I was a nobody. And how many big, big, big shots give nobody uh, a chance to contribute and participate? The change that has occurred because of my interaction with Larry Dora has been monumental. And you know what? A lot of people say the same thing. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Um, I want to thank uh, Russell Bodner and everybody who contributed tonight. Uh, Russ, if you'd like to say another couple of things, fine. Otherwise, I'm going to call it a, a night. We're at age uh, 59. Um, but I really want to thank you so much. Um, your contributions on LinkedIn are legendary and astounding. And, um, and the contribution tonight on clarifying what, what to many people has been a very complex topic has been just, just an eye opener for all of us. I, I want to thank I, you so much. 
My pleasure. I promised Larry Dorr that my legacy would be to teach what he had taught me and what we had learned together. Because I'm not an academic, it's very difficult for me to produce papers. But I have no platform. I'm not in the inner club. And so I used LinkedIn to teach. And, and that's what I, what I do. And it's opened up a whole new network for me, friends around the world. I mean, it's just incredible, Ira. You do yeah, a great Bod job, Dr. Bodner. Thank you. Thank you very much, Beth. Russ, you're an excellent teacher. And whenever I'm at a meeting, I'm always seeing you at the, at the posters and looking at every single paper and trying to figure things out just like I do. You do a great job, Russ. Thank you very much, John. That, that means a lot to me. All right. So with that, we're going to uh, say good night. And I want to thank everybody who's been here. Uh, always feel free to post about this. This recording will be on the Joey uh, website and the YouTube channel and will be, of course, pushed like crazy on uh, LinkedIn. Um, and I want to thank everybody for, for coming tonight.